we journey through life, we face many perils. Yet the Christian has trust in God who has delivered him or her time and again. Even in the face of our mortality, we can continue to trust God to not leave us in the dust of the earth. Our God is one in whom we can completely trust to restore us to life eternal. Over these past two troublesome years, we have witnessed the deaths of hundreds of thousands of fellow Americans due to COVID-19. And no doubt you know of people, including church members, who have contracted this dreaded disease. I've also known a few who have died from it, as perhaps you do as well. For me, this has been a sad year. I've witnessed the deaths of church members of the Charlotte congregation, including the wife of a fellow minister with whom we were good friends. I lost my fellow uh, minister, friend, personal correspondence department predecessor, and then about a month ago, my mother. She would have been 94 this month. My dad died about four years ago. And then two weeks after that, I lost a longtime <coughs> friend from my Worldwide Church of God days, and we had adjoining areas a couple of times as we served together, many years together up in Canada. Death is an ever-present prospect for all of us. None of us likes to think about it, and yet it's assured unless we are alive when Jesus returns. Jesus himself faced death. What gave him such confidence in God's promise of a resurrection? A life again, a life restored. One of the important Messianic Psalms quoted in our New Testament is Psalm 16. And that's going to be our study today. In this psalm, David prophetically writes about Jesus' trust in the Father to raise him again. Our study of this psalm will give us great hope for facing the future, by life and even through death. So this will be an expository sermon of Psalm 16. And the title is Psalm 16, A Psalm of Trust. Let me give you a little background to this psalm. This psalm reveals David's confidence, since it is one of his psalms, his confidence in God through faith. It may have been written when he faced great danger in the wilderness, on the run from his persecutor, King Saul. And David knew he could trust God through this danger. Now, that's speculation that that was the occasion that caused his writing of this psalm. It may have been just a time when he was uh, on the run from one of his many enemies during his reign. But this psalm has a remarkable prophetic aspect that parallels many of the messianic psalms and prophecies uh, concerning, or I should say the messianic prophecies concerning the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And this poem of David became central in the preaching of the apostles in the early church, as we'll see later. So it was a prayer for safekeeping, pleading for God's protection against the threat of death. So it's a psalm of trust, Psalm 16, a psalm of trust. 
And in the psalm, he seeks divine protection because he's remained loyal to God. And he praises God for his rich blessings. And he's confident that God will vindicate him and deliver him from death. So this psalm, if you want to turn over there as we look at it, has three major parts. In verses 1 to 4, David seeks protection from God. He disclaims any personal merit. And he avows his love to God's people, he calls the saints, and his hatred for idolaters and their idols. In the second part, verses 5 to 7, he rejoices in God as his portion, and he thanks him for giving him counsel. And then in verses 8 to 11, he speaks prophetically of the resurrection and the glory of Christ. And the happiness of Christ's people. So let's go to Psalm 16. You may want to put your ribbon marker here. Because we will go elsewhere as well. Psalm 16. Now let's notice that the words above verse 1 are a miktam of David. This is called a superscription. Superscription means the words above other words. Something written. So these are words written above, excuse excuse me, verse 1. All right, so we call it, excuse me, still trying to get that frog out. (laughs) Afternoon frog. Okay, it is called a miktam of David. Superscription, words written above verse 1. Now in the Hebrew Bible, that's actually part of verse 1. But a miktam occurs in the titles of six of David's psalms from 56 to 60. And the meaning of the word is difficult to determine. The Hebrew root from which the word is uh, derived means cover, secret, something inscribed or hidden. <clears throat> and it seems to be a, a mystery that you have to contemplate deeply. So one suggestion is that it requires deep meditation Deep feeling. Another idea is that miktam refers to something golden, like a secret treasure, a song graven upon a stone, a golden psalm of David, some call it. Others suggest no, actually was a musical term, one of the many musical terms that occur in the book of Psalms. And again, it's just unclear just how it's intended, because remember, these are the lyrics of the hymns that the people of Israel sang in the temple. But we uh, can read from the books of our New Testament, in particular, Acts, that Peter and Paul quote parts of this book, Psalm 16, about Jesus' resurrection. We know that ultimately this was its direct reference, and it expresses his human emotion when Christ was enduring sufferings and death, and he cried out to God to preserve him. So let's go to verse 1 now, Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. So here is David's petition and the basis for it. Uh, The rest of the psalm elaborates on the rest of this. And preserve me, he's speaking in terms that was like a group of bodyguards around a king or shepherds who protect their flocks. He was calling on God to stand by his side and defend him. And he calls upon El, 
or El, as it was pronounced in Hebrew, E-L. That's the Hebrew word for God here. The mighty one, an omnipotent one, the preserver of men. He says, in thee do I put my trust. So this is a psalm that we'll see at the end. It's very much a prophecy of Jesus' um, resurrection. These could have been words... Excuse me. These could have been words that Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his arrest and crucifixion. And he says he puts his trust in the Almighty. And was the Hebrew has the sense of seeking refuge, taking shelter, seeking protection. He was demonstrating loyalty to God that he was calling upon to defend him. I put my trust. So David uses the expression that also has a sense of a bird seeking refuge under its mother's wings, uh, indicating his complete trust in the Almighty. So from this strong stance of confidence, he's able to proclaim God's goodness, that it only comes from the Almighty himself. So it's called a psalm, or uh, rather in the Psalm of Asaph in Psalm 73, we have a similar expression that I desire nothing on earth besides you. So verse 1 again, for in you do I put my trust. And now verse 2, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness extends not to you. Now the eternal is David's one and only good thing as he speaks here. David will have nothing to do with the counterfeit gods, And he realizes that he has no goodness to offer the Almighty. That even the uh, goodness that he has has come strictly from God. David had no goodness that God needed from him. And that phrase, uh, my goodness extends not to you, is a difficult phrase to express in the Hebrew. It's most likely related to the similar expressions again in Psalm 73 that he found nothing desirable on earth apart from the Almighty. His main goal was to serve God, and he was a man after God's own heart. One of the verses in Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but in thee, but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. So we have no goodness that God needs. Our goodness is not going to profit him. And David realized how much he needed the Almighty. So in verse 3 now, but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all your delight. So when you read these two verses together, David is saying, you are my Lord. He knows his goodness does not come from himself, but he looks to those people who serve God as much as he does. The saints which are in the earth, those who are, he calls the excellent in whom is his delight. The Hebrew word for saints is kiddoshim, the holy or separated ones. His holiness is God-likeness. Remember, God told the people of Israel back in Leviticus, You therefore be holy, for I am holy. And that's the basis of the word saints. Saints refers to separated ones, not the people in stained glass windows in church buildings, Those are not the saints. The saints are just God's people who serve him faithfully. The holy ones, those who uh, are on earth, 
the faithful ones, the godly, the kasid uh, is another Hebrew word for the godly. They are in his land, <coughs> excuse me, in his, uh, on his earth. So a contrast of people, character, and holiness to those who serve other gods, as we will see in the next verse. His love to God is the surest bond of unity among God's people. You know, we have something special among ourselves, a special relationship. When we are apart from each other and we're surrounded by people who are not part of God's church, we are anxious at times to get back together with God's people because the contrast in behavior can be so stark. And that's the way David speaks of his fellow saints in verse 3. Now, verse 4, their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. This is the only sad and tragic note of the entire psalm. And he's talking about those who worshiped idols, who will experience sorrows. And he wishes sorrows to be multiplied. Uh, it's kind of an imprecatory prayer is what it's called. Those who are idol worshipers, and he refers to their drink offerings. The drink offerings could be human sacrifice. Uh, as we know in Mesoamerica, many people died in worship of various idols, and it was common in pagan religions to shed the blood and rip out beating hearts, even drink the blood of these poor victims. And David says he will have nothing to do with that kind of a practice. He worships the one true God. He says he will not even take the names of these gods up into his lips, which means he would not appeal to nor worship them. He would not swear an oath in that God's name. A pious Israelite would not even mention the names of other gods, because in the law that Moses was inspired to write, it was forbidden in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, even to mention the names of these foreign gods. Now we go into the second section of this psalm, starting in verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. You maintain my lot. So the words portion and lot and boundary lines and heritage all had to do with the territory that was promised every Israelite family and tribe in the Holy Land. The idea that God separated the land just for them. But David uses that as an analogy of God being his true inheritance. Now for the uh, Levites the family of Aaron, the priests, and the Levites, they were given no land by contrast to the rest of the tribes because God was their inheritance, as we read in the laws of Moses. God was their greater inheritance. But David, being a king of Israel, he did have a sizable inheritance. Being king, he had private territory, no doubt, that he could pass on to his descendants. But he speaks of God as his portion, as his cup, and the lines of his territory, the boundaries of his uh, territory, that God was his assured inheritance. Now, for Christ, 
we know in his existence, he had no inheritance when he was here on earth. He said at one point he had nowhere even to lay his head. But he will have a, a godly inheritance uh, when he returns. You notice that David says in verse 5 that the eternal was his cup. That was a metaphor for what a host offers a guest to drink, to make them feel welcome, his lot and condition in life. And in these scriptures, God offers a cup of blessing. Even in the Psalms, like in Psalm 23, a cup of blessing to his people, symbolically, spiritually, a cup of blessing or a cup of salvation. But he would make the wicked drink a cup of wrath. Now, this relates to Jesus as well. Because remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to the Father, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was about to symbolically drink that cup of wrath that God pours out upon sinners because of their transgressions of God's law. But the cup of blessing is offered to the Almighty and to, or to His people. In uh, verse 6 and 5, that my, you maintain my lot, the lions are fallen to me in pleasant places, yea, I have a godly heritage. So David is counting on God, the Almighty, as his inheritance. You maintain my lot. The lions are fallen to me in pleasant places, yea, I have a godly heritage. Now verse 7, 7 and 8. I will bless the eternal who has given me counsel. My reins, that is my heart, shall instruct me in the night seasons. You have given me counsel. And what counsel is he talking about? goes down to verse 11. You will show me the path of life. For in your presence is fullness of joy. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward receive me to glory. That's what again he says in Psalm 73. God guides his people with counsel. The counsel comes from his word. And as well, uh, we have counsel through the ministry as they uh, work together with God's people. So verse uh, 7, when he talks about my reins, literally that's a term for kidneys. (laughs) Believe it or not, in the Hebrew, that's the way it's expressed. And it refers to the heart, the inner person, the conscience, the mind, the thoughts, the inmost being. The conscience viewed as the seat of a person's moral character. So in the quiet darkness, God was speaking to David in his inner being through that conscience, enabling him to grow in moral understanding. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My reins or heart will instruct me in the night seasons. You know, there are times at night when we don't sleep very well or we're wide awake and we're Uh, thinking over things in our lives that are about to happen or have happened. And God can give us counsel if we really are connected with him. He will instruct us in those night seasons, as David says he did for him. And now verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. 
Now, here's where we begin to reveal a prophecy that David was inspired to write that became part of our Bible that relates to Jesus' resurrection. And from here to the end of the psalm, this section is quoted first by Peter in his very famous Pentecost sermon, and then by Paul. And we're going to touch on that a little bit later. But I have set the Lord always before me. In David's eyes, God was no mere abstraction, but a person actually at his side. For example, as in the book of Genesis, Enoch walked with God. And he spoke of the Eternals being so close to him that he was at his right hand as a sustainer and protector. Which your right hand in the biblical world was a position of honor and dignity, of defense and protection. And in legal context, the person who represented the defense of another was considered as on your right hand. Your lawyer that came to your defense. And in the military context, the soldier protecting his comrade was at that guy's right hand. To protect him and defend him. And it was also where that soldier carried his drawn sword to protect himself in hand-to-hand combat. And that's the way the soldiers would line up. Your buddy on your right was the one defending you. And you in turn were defending the person on your left. So David speaks of this relationship with God as being, being very special. That God was on his right hand. And I shall not be moved as a result. And now verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Verse 9. From here on, we're going to see that this will refer to Jesus' resurrection. And resurrection for the saints becomes a reality because of his resurrection. Remember at Passover, every year we read a section from John 6. And one of the verses that Jesus spoke during that special occasion was this. Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. You see, our resurrection, our eternal life depends on whether Jesus came out of that tomb alive. So verses 9 to 11 describe the joy of our security, knowing that God's word is good. Prophecy reveals that David will once again reign over Israel. He's asleep now, but he will come back to life. And David knew that. He seemed to sense that there was something beyond the grave. He knew God would not abandon him to that grave, even though his heart and flesh fails. The grave would not rob him of eternal life. So along with verse 8, these verses are quoted in our New Testament as referring to Jesus' resurrection. According to Peter, this is the meaning that God ultimately intended from this psalm because it related to the coming of the Messiah. So verse 9, therefore my heart is glad. No, it's I myself, the heart representing the whole person, the center of the human spirit from which all emotions and thought, motivations and courage and action come. 
And then he says, my glory rejoices. That is in the inner being, the powers of his mind. He rejoices in the almighty. Rejoices, my flesh shall rest in hope. That's resurrection hope. David was inspired to write of a trust in God even beyond death itself. My flesh shall rest in hope. And now verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in hell. Neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. David had a confidence that the Almighty would not abandon him to the grave or surrender him or forsake him. You will not leave my soul. Now, the word soul is nephesh, familiar term to all of us. 755 times in the Old Testament, 144 times in the Psalms, often rendered soul, but also 119 times rendered as life. You will not leave my life in the grave. Hell, Sheol. The old English word hell came from a Saxon word, Helan, or Helen, or hole, a cavern or hole in the ground. No, words, you're not going to abandon me in that grave. Neither will you suffer or allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, the Holy One here is Kassid in the Hebrew faithful follower. It's often used for God's people. But in the context in which Peter and Paul used it, it had reference to the Messiah. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption, equivalent to death itself. Now, when you read Peter's sermon in Acts 2, he made the case that this psalm, and he attributes it to David, that this psalm, these verses here, did not directly refer to David at that time. In fact, Peter says, David is dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. And some historians uh, suggest that where David, where Peter was standing, you could see David's sepulcher from the temple. And he may have been pointing to it, that David is dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us to this day. Now leave your marker there and let's go to Acts 13 because the Apostle Paul makes this case as well. In Acts 13, when Paul was preaching at Pisidian Antioch, he refers to this passage from uh, David and he explains its meaning in reference to Jesus and his resurrection. Acts 13, starting at verse 33. Thirteen thirty-three. Paul says, God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, this day have I begotten you. And as concerning that, he raised him from the dead. Now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore, he says also in another psalm, thou shalt not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. And that comes from Psalm 16. We just read this verse. 36, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, 
fell on asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Paul is making the case that Jesus was raised from the dead after three days and three nights. He did not see corruption, though that did happen to David, because that's what Peter said. David is still in that sepulcher down the road. So then Paul goes on in verse 38, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So we go back to Psalm 16 now. But what an encouragement this is to all of God's people, all true believers. Even if we should die before he returns, we shall rise again because the bodies of believers shall be delivered from the corruption by virtue of our being in the body of Christ. Christ's victory over death was both a victory for himself and his spiritual body, his church. Now, verse 11 of Psalm 16. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The path of life usually means the way to life in the Old Testament wisdom literature, but prophetically it's referring to Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his ascension back to heaven. The path of life, God showed him the way out of that tomb. And because God has shown him the path of life, he will show it to those who are united to Christ being part of his body. Though their bodies go to the grave, they will not be left there forever. They will, when he returns a second time, they will be raised up incorruptible and glorious. Remember those wonderful words of Paul in 1 Corinthians. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on corruption, incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Wonderful words of hope for God's people. So verse 11, you will show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That is the first of 21 biblical references to Christ ascending to be at the Father's right hand, that place of honor. And one of the verses uh, that is used uh, to refer to Christ at the right hand is this, that he is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. This is his continual intercessory ministry on our behalf. It's his main activity right now as he prepares us for his kingdom and eternal life. And soon he's going to come back with God's strong right hand of power manifested against his enemies. 
And we, his people, will be taken up to be with him forever. And there, there will be pleasures and fullness of joy forever. Verse 11, you will show me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Christ is the first begotten from the dead, the firstborn of every creature. Let's go to John chapter 14 and verse 19. Because Jesus is alive, and we need to know that, we need to live this, because our future depends on whether he is alive today. We have a living Savior. He's not still in a grave somewhere in Jerusalem. He's alive. He's at the Father's right hand. He will come back. And when he does, we will be with him where there will be pleasures forevermore. John 14 and verse 19. John 14, verse 19. Yet a little while and the world sees me no more, but you shall see me. Because I live, you shall live also. Because I live, you shall live also. So when we go back to Psalm 16, that last verse is a hope for the kingdom of God. In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right, at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. We cannot imagine the great pleasures that we shall enjoy at that kingdom yet. But we shall experience them. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9 as we wrap up. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. But as it is written... I has not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. They are beyond our imagination. This Psalm 16 gave great hope to David as he faced his enemies. David did see corruption. That's what Peter and Paul both explain in the book of Acts. But it's only temporary. He will rise again, as we know plainly from the prophecies of the Old Testament. David will reign over the tribes of Israel yet again. But there was a greater David that he wrote for, and that was his later son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who did die, who was raised from the dead, who is alive today, who reigns with the Father, who is now making intercession with us, Day to day. So Christians have present benefits and future prospects, even through the face of death. And I think COVID has made all of us stop and think about mortality uh, more seriously these past two years. But even in the face of death, we have every reason to live joyously in hope because of this verse 11 from Psalm 16. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore.